Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're listening. This is episode uh, 21, maybe, of the Stromcast, and we are rejoined by Dr. Dean, head formulator and educator for supplement needs. And I would go as far as to say friend of Stroms, friend of mine. And today we're going to have a look at protein overfeeding, um, particularly uh, in, uh, in regards to gaining muscle in off-season bodybuilders. High protein diets are something that's often discussed when dieting, something me and Dr. Dean have both done. But when it comes to gaining muscle, it's very trendy at the moment, particularly in a lot of forums and Facebook groups, to say, oh, you only need 100 grams of protein. Supplement companies want you to think you need more protein than you do. Studies say, and this is where it falls down, because there are very few studies that you will find in um, resistance-trained athletes using massive doses of steroids, because ethics simply don't allow those studies to be done. Um, and I know this is something that Dean talks about. It's something that I've talked about. I used to talk about heavily with Court, but Court is currently missing in action. Um, yeah. So I guess I know what my thoughts are, and I've talked about it a little bit, and I know roughly what Dean's thoughts are, um, but I'd like to hear from the horse mouth. So, Dean, if you could in, give me your opinion or, or an overview on, on how very high-protein intakes can be used advantageously for, for the, in the pursuit of building muscle. So I guess... What, what we've the argument here is utilization of amino acids when it comes to digestion. But when it comes to an enhanced athlete, okay, we'll, we'll always come back to the basics that you are what you can assimilate. So in other words, you know, what, what you can digest and break down and that enters your bloodstream, free circulation. Yes, that's, that's an adequate argument. But we have tons of studies from the 60s and 70s of how anabolic steroids increase nitrogen retention. So in other words, nitrogen or amine groups are the, the key part or structure to an amino acid. So in other words, when you have nitrogen retention in the body, you retain more nitrogen, you retain more blood levels of amino acids, you have less blood urea nitrogen which is when your body excretes nitrogen at the liver so that goes into your urine so if we have a context there where we're comparing a natural unassisted athlete versus unassisted athletes it'd be crazy to say that the rda of something like i don't know arbitrarily in the past one gram per pound protein intake or to be fancy what we sort of view it now of the upper three grams roughly per kit for no two grams per kilogram i think was the, yeah. the the upper range and then there's there's obviously a push there for enhanced that needs to go anywhere from three to three and a half grams per kilogram yeah or for the old system one and a half to two grams per pound yeah the the logic there is, as I said, you have a decrease in nitrogen excretion. So obviously to put on muscle mass, we have to sort of view it like a, like a bank account where we have muscle protein synthesis where we're constructing proteins from amino acids. And obviously skeletal muscle is protein based. And then we have muscle protein breakdown where we're catabolizing muscle protein in order to obviously provide energy substrates or you know gluconeogenesis where we're breaking down amino acids for, for glucose. The whole point of increasing musculature is that you end up in a positive nitrogen balance for that day where you have sort of banked more amino acids into muscle protein synthesis over muscle protein breakdown. So in, in a Unassisted athlete, okay, I guess what's sort of going to dictate how much protein you'll utilize and uh, I guess tissue accretion will come down to digestion yeah. and, and how often you are ingesting amino acids or that leucine threshold which activates the mTOR an anabolic pathway that causes muscle protein synthesis. So I guess, number one, can you digest the protein, whether it's a, a whole protein source or whole food source? 
or are you using a, a supplement like essential amino acids where you're you're hitting the three to four grams of leucine every four three four hours that when mTOR starts to drop off you're stimulating the the synthetic pathway again whereas with a assisted athlete we now have sort of a system whereby digestion obviously still plays a part but we have specific genetic control now from the androgen receptor and how it acts on the liver that we're retaining these amino acids within our blood pool for longer so in other words when we stimulate muscle protein synthesis when we hit that leucine threshold we have a greater propensity then to build muscle tissue and there's also potential for a, a higher or a, a better stimulation of muscle protein synthesis in terms of the amount that actually gets laid down um yeah i mean the, the science dean's just covered is, is is very comprehensive in terms of why an assisted athlete could benefit from a higher protein intake and, and there are a few caveats with that um there are a few myths to cover and then there's the actual practical application of that um so yeah. one of the one of the big caveats dean's already touched on is is digestion some people simply can't do it and whenever i talk about this in a practical application um i'll always say it has to come down to what the athlete can digest um and a lot of that is it you have to go by feel um i can't tell you dean can't tell you clever as he is um you know i know for a fact i've got a, a prop here which is stupid because this isn't a video podcast um but i know that i can comfortably get through a liter of egg whites and 150 200 grams of whey protein isolate a day with no issues i can do 150 200 grams of protein from fish i can't get through anywhere near that amount of chicken or red meat um so picking sources that that work for you is 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 a big consideration um but there are some myths whenever we talk about this i'll get dropped into my dms and you'll probably get similar um so the kind of things that people will generally throw at this will be but i thought you could only process 25 grams of protein per serving <laughs> and if i'm only eating every three hours if i eat five or six times so that's only taking me to 150 200 grams of protein um I would generally just say that that's nonsense and move on, but I'm sure Dean would probably want to cover it in more detail. No, but I, I guess that that stemmed from a study where we, we were looking at, I guess, amino acid utilization, but that was in the context of, of mTOR stimulation and hitting that, that leucine threshold. Yeah. And it was, okay. a, it was a single protein source that was utilized in that study. And, yeah. and they also didn't measure the amount of time that uh, mTOR stimulated for protein synthesis occurred for. So it was just a, the maximum amount of protein that was required to hit a maximal mTOR stimulation, but not how long that was, was going to occur for. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of the point at which level of stimulation dropped off. Um, very few people are consuming just one type of protein. Um, yeah. And I think the the underlying principle that came out of that study was yes it's important that we we ingest a complete protein source so one that is it has the full nine essential amino acids but more specifically hitting that leucine threshold is actually what's more important because of how leucine interacts with driving mTOR stimulation yeah. so in other words 30 grams of whey protein should have approximately three to four grams of leucine if it's a good quality blend which in other words is hitting that threshold activating muscle protein synthesis but it's not just specifically that oh 30 grams is this magic number that you can only assimilate you yeah. could ingest 60 grams of a complete protein source where you're hitting that leucine threshold activating mTOR and if there's a an anabolic drive or a need for those amino acids to be utilized in the body and drive positive nitrogen retention, then you're going to build muscle protein. And crucially, that need, as Dean framed perfectly, will be driven by training and steroids. Yeah. And that's where this really comes in useful. You know what, if you're a natural and your need for amino acids is driven by, by training and your ability to recover, that, that need might not be as big, but someone who is assisted potentially, not always, but potentially, that need could be much bigger. On the anecdotal, every single person I know that stepped on an Olympian stage has consumed 400 to 500 grams of protein minimum. 
Yeah, I know that's anecdotal and we don't like anecdotal, but if the cap fits. Yeah, I mean, there's high anecdotal evidence. I mean, you could probably do case studies on this and look back historically at someone's protein intake versus what muscle they've gathered over the years. But, I mean, we're going back to now some sort of underground steroid books and i'm sure people have read some of arthur Rhea's books yeah to, building the perfect beast yeah building the perfect beast and chemical enhancement yeah too. it was the second one and he had this magic number where he was always pushing i think it was 1.81 grams per pound was his magic number in the books and it was just basically that in his opinion because of this positive nitrogen retention and obviously how Steroids themselves drive androgen receptor signaling, which then obviously turns on muscle protein synthesis. That 1.81 seemed to be a, I don't know where you got the number from, but you know, we anecdotally see up to two grams per pound being quite logical. Yeah. So, in other words, somebody weighs 100 kilos, they're going to be ingesting, you know, nearly 450 grams of protein per day. Yeah. And like you said, it does come down to what you can digest. Yeah. And, and where that, that ulti- <laughs> where that ultimately comes down to is your actual stomach health, because, as you said, I personally can't. Uh, over the years, I've developed not an intolerance, but just not the ability to break down beef appropriately. Yeah. So when I ingest beef, it completely slows my digestion down because I just don't have the chemical digestion in order to break down meat at a fast enough rate to keep up with stomach emptying yeah so you you then you know you start to get a feel for what protein sources you digest rapidly and others that completely slow things down so the likes of eggs and beef have been completely on my diet now for the last two years whereas they would have been a staple probably for the four years prior to that so and and I was going to say that that all comes down to your, your stomach acid in your stomach. Yeah, you know, as I mean, you get older. Experience there, you know, this isn't something that someone who someone who listens to this and goes, Oh, you know what? Fuck, Rick and Dean said that's good. I'm gonna try it. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have a decent level of experience of eating consistently to a structure to know what foods work and what foods don't. Yeah. I mean, um, you can sort of you can you could technically supplement, in other words, you can use, you know, betaine HCL where the betaine goes off and goes and does its magic wonders with methylation and, you know, folate and B12. For people that don't realise, betaine is also trimetylglycine. You see it in all different supplements. But betaine HCL is a supplement where it's it's a hydrochloric salt. So in other words, when it enters your stomach, the betaine goes off into your bloodstream, but it leaves hydrochloric behind. Yeah. And that increases the amount of hydrochloric acid that's in your stomach. So in Not other words, when you use with betaine and hydrous, which does do a different job because it doesn't have the hydrochloric acid. It, exactly. And that's where then the, the HCL temporarily increases your stomach acid. So it doesn't actually cause long-term increases in stomach acid. It's useful that if you do have stomach acid deficiencies, which again is coming back to either zinc deficiency or parietal cells which are the the acidic producing cells of your stomach they can get damaged over time by bacteria stress loads of different things chemical erosion of your stomach lining betaine hcl will facilitate you being able to to digest that food but it's not going to magically fix the problem so you you'll find guys that want to cheat the system a little bit and sort of get away with higher protein intakes without the gastric distress. And when I mean gastric distress, it's putrid sulfur farts because basically you have not completely digested, chemically digested the protein in your stomach and it's passing into your small intestine and starting to decay. So in other words, if you do have horrendous gas, smelling gas, it's sort of a telltale sign that you're not digesting your protein correctly. So you sort of have to work backwards then to see where, where the food source that's causing that problem also is. So just before we get onto the implementation of this, and I'm going to talk about how I implement it, how I used to implement it with clients, and I've implemented with a few guys that went from being, two guys in particular that went from being physique competitors to being um, heavyweight bodybuilders. 
Um, one of the other things that I've heard spouted recently when I've discussed this with people is, yeah, but carbohydrates are protein sparing. And my retort has always been, yeah, but protein is also protein sparing. Um, now, people will talk about this in the reference to the fact that protein and very high, if you have a lot, will convert to glucose via gluconogenesis. Um, for those who don't know, that means that the amino acids in the protein, as Dean referenced earlier, can be broken down to produce glucose that your body uses as blood glucose. My argument for that has always been that it doesn't really happen to any degree that is clinically significant. And, and the proof of this is a condition called rabbit starvation. Now, rabbit starvation is when it's happened in the past. People in a survival situation only have access to rabbits was the traditional one, but very lean meat. So rabbit is a very lean meat. There's very little fat on rabbit. And people have been in situations where they've got lots and lots of food, i.e. just lean meat, but they still starve to death because they can't extract enough energy from it. Um, that's how inefficient gluconogenesis is. It doesn't really happen to the degree that people think it would happen in the real world. Yeah. And I think gluconeogenesis more so has a, an implication towards a fasting setting, whereby yeah, a fasting setting, or if someone's trying to be in ketogenesis, uh, maybe maybe for a diabetic uh, type scenario, which is about the only time I really like keto, to be honest. I'm sure people will disagree with me on that. Yeah, well, well, I mean, the, the, what I'm trying to get here is there was a, a trend like this sort of feeds into not a counter argument, but a a silly logic then to what we're discussing here was the trend of drinking BCAAs all day. Yeah. Whereas leucine is insulinogenic. So rather than being a, a gluconeogenic source, so in other words, converting the glucose, it actually stimulates the production of insulin, which when we have levels of high insulin in the blood and we don't have enough glucose, you have glucagon... Yeah, so you have glucagon release and your body releases glucose to try and counteract that insulin. So in other words, in a fasting environment, for the 1% or 2% gain you might get from your fasting cardio, that's where that sort of negates it. We're going off topic slightly, but when people say this, people will then say, well, what's the point in my, my BCAAs and my EAAs? EAAs are really, really good, really important when you're training. And this is something people misunderstand. The benefit to an EAA over a whole protein, and there is a benefit, is that they're pre-digested. Your body doesn't have to break them down because they're already free-form amino acids. While you're training, if you're training hard, like Dean does and I don't, the blood in your body shouldn't be in your stomach. That's not where we want it. We want it to be in your muscles. Blood flow to the stomach to reduce. You're not going to be in a good position to break down whole protein, but you are in a good position to absorb already broken down free-form amino acids. That's where a product like Supplement Needs EAA Plus, our Essential Max, comes in really useful yeah they're not a particularly useful product to be used through the day whether that's sip through the day or whether that's alongside your meals it just doesn't make a huge amount of sense i get why people do it and i understand how a leads to b leads to c logically but but in a practical sense keep them for when you're training um maybe if you're doing fasted cardio perhaps if you're a natural i'm still not decided i think no, that's I, I still... both ways I'm still of the opinion that if if you are even a natural athlete, you're you're gonna have your first meal relatively soon after fasted activity, maybe an hour or two hours later if you're trying to extend certain lipolytics that's in your system. But yeah, the, the idea of constantly sipping even a, a leucine source throughout the day, that low level stimulation of insulin over time, it's no wonder guys are then ending up with if you want to sip something through the day. Sip, Hicker and HMB. <laughs> I mean, they'll taste awful, and we should probably do an anti-catabolic natty sip this <laughs> shit through the day drink. And it would be for me, Hicker, HMB, some electrolytes, and I put sustamine. Sustamine in. Yeah, maybe sustamine, something like that. There we go. That's the next product. Who can release it first? <laughs> it wouldn't be a bad right. actually. Uh, yeah, uh, very niche. I, I, I tell you what, if if you have, and I I done it years ago, obviously before where where I am now. But in the beginning days of bodybuilding, I would have bought HMB and ticket as a power. And I the only time it. I natty dieted properly, I took I think three grams of HMB with every meal, um, <laughs> and I looked good. But I also did so many other things. It's hard to pin down what was effective. I think HMB is actually really underrated. It just needs to be a very high dose. 
and it just floats on the surface of your water. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, I'm going to describe how I implement protein overfeeding in an off-season diet or how I used to implement it with clients when I used to have clients. And then we're going to find out, um, Dean's going to either tell me why I'm wrong or agree with me. We'll find out. Yeah. But I would suggest that the time to implement this is you've done a diet or you've done a prep, you've then had a wobble, whatever, and you get yourself sorted and you get to a point where you've found your true maintenance calories and you've managed to maintain your weight for maybe a month or so. So you've kind of got yourself stable and you're back in a routine. At that point, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to even throw random numbers out in my head, but we're assuming that you're at maintenance and you're eating roughly, you know, I've always liked 40% carb, 40% protein, 40% fat, uh, sorry, 20% fat as a starting baseline. Yeah. At that point, I would then implement an additional 50 to 75 grams of protein from lean protein sources and very little else and run that for a week to two weeks, see what happens, and then incrementally increase from there until we get to this kind of 1.8 to 2 grams per pound of body weight figure on protein. And you would generally find, and if you look at the studies on protein overfeeding, this is actually shown to happen in, in people who don't train, regardless of the fact that there are other studies that say that you can't utilize those levels of protein. You would generally find that someone would do that magic trick of getting a bit bigger and a bit leaner at the same time. Um, yeah. Whether that's because of thermic effective food, whether it's because of the massively anti-catabolic nature of protein, whether it's because there's something particularly special about protein overfeeding in people who are assisted. I have never seen that not happen as long as someone's disciplined enough to add lean protein from shit like white fish and turkey breast and egg whites and whey isolate and that's the key it's not add 75 grams of protein from hot dogs or from beef or any it's got to be 75 grams of just protein and then that figure can titrate up until you get to your magic figure i don't know how that might differentiate from how you use it in the past no i do something similar like so I, I generally, um, if I'm doing this with someone, I'll, and this is pure uh, enhanced population because a natural person, I'm is always going to, the, the natural person, I'm always going to start at one gram per pound roughly. And yeah. then from there, we, we assess because a natural person probably will favor more being fed carbohydrates. I would because, agree highly. So, you know, uh, wasting any more calories on, more than one gram per pound okay yeah maybe you might you might end up at 1.2 1.3 um, max but, but yeah. as you said before that this only makes sense in someone who can utilize it which is yeah. why unfortunately the natty crowd just just have to sit this one out yeah uh, so with, with an enhanced I, i'll generally start at 1.5 okay 1.5 is sort of regardless of for like 40 percent you know 40 percent protein 40 percent carbs I'll, I'll pick 1.5 grams per pound for for protein in, a, in an enhanced person. I'll set carbs then. I, I, I'll go the opposite and I set fat sort of anywhere from 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.7 grams per pound. So I'll start at the very low end of fat intake as well. And then whatever's left over goes, the calories that are sort of set towards their maintenance all gets pushed towards carbs. From there then, the next sort of incremental increases when it comes to dietary adjustment is slowly pushing protein up until we sort of hit comfortably that two grams per pound. And, and you find that it's it's relatively easy to, to hit that protein intake. Uh, and I'm sure if people follow Dr. Scott Stevens and he, he's after putting up a post yesterday about whey isolate and cereal post-workout where like his post-workout meal is anywhere from three to 400 grams of cereal with 120 grams of whey isolate. So, you know, this sort of whole thing of protein overfeeding not being a real thing is yeah. clearly being put into practice by one of the top-level minds within this. Yeah. Like, I, you I, know, if, I, you watch, if you watch Dorian, not Dorian, sorry, Ronnie's old stuff. Ronnie used to eat 500 grams of protein a day and then just add whatever else we felt we needed on top. I think Dorian did something similar. Um, I know because Dorian did it isn't a good argument, but it's also not a bad place to start. No, and I mean, like even even now, myself in, in my own off season, um, my protein is at I think three 
330 grams. So I'm I'm over that that 1.5 grams yeah. per pound. I think I'm at 1.6 or 1.7. And so I've, I've, generally, still- I've generally found this isn't something that people do for a very long period of time, um, because either digestion falls down or mentally it just gets a bit tough because it you do end up eating lots of quite dull food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like my my diet at the moment is. So my my pre-workout meal is 60 grams of whey isolate. My intra-workout is 20 grams of EAAs from uh, intra-EAA. Then post-workout, I have 60 grams of whey isolate. Um, and then I have three meals of um, whole protein source from chicken and yeah. cod. And that's, uh, I think, 225 grams so you've so got 120 grams of whole protein in that workout window, plus yeah. 20 grams of free-form amino acid. So, you know, in terms of mTOR stimulation, you could probably argue that that's going to be a fair bit above <laughs> yeah. because you've got a lot of leucine in there as well. Yeah. Um, and then obviously then the, the other three meals, then the 225 chicken and fish, you know, 225 grams of, of a lean protein source when it comes to an actual meal isn't that much. I think no. even for like if, if American guys listening, it's probably six ounces or something. It's not yeah, very, it's not massive at all. Very low end that you know, eating that and then trying to eat. I think that the, my meals at the moment now are up to. I think Callum has it at three hundred and thirty grams of cooked jasmine rice. So it's about one hundred and ten grams of carbs from jasmine rice. Yeah, that is the harder thing to eat your way through versus the, the chicken yeah, yeah, or the fish. And I don't know, logically, I, I guess another sort of tip here is Dante's old musings of eat your protein first on your plate and then eat your carbs. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to waste <laughs> I mean, the old you are what you eat, I know it's a little bit cliche, things aren't as simple as that, but muscles are made of protein. They're not made of carbs, they're not made of cocoa pops, they're not made of bagels. They're made of protein. And, and the key is getting that protein from the food source into muscle fibers. And that, that's trickier. But yeah. But crucially, none of those cocoa pops are going to end up in your biceps. No. At the end of the day, all you're doing with carbohydrate intake is facilitating glycogen. Yeah. And then obviously that is going to allow you to train at a significantly harder or yeah. more progressive rate, which in other words then is providing that, that overload stimulus yeah. for muscle fibers to either elongate or for new myonuclei, new muscle satellite cells to develop. So, so it's three last bits on this. Three, yeah. What are your takes on, um, you know, the very high kind of five, 600 grams of protein a day? Um, there have been some studies on untrained individuals just doing it as a dietary thing that have shown despite higher calorie intake, improved body composition um now whether that translates over to a bodybuilding setting i'm still undecided i'd be curious on your opinion on that so obviously what you've touched on earlier on is the the thermic effect of foods and obviously it's not just uh, this is sort of where this calories in calories out model sort of falls down slightly and that you have to take into account the energy it takes to digest yeah i suppose falls down is is perhaps a bit of a misnomer it's more just that you have to appreciate all of the elements in the system the system is slightly more complicated than instagram allows you to explain in 15 seconds yeah and that you know that thermic effect of foods if if you're losing um like arbitrarily 10 percent of the calories that you've ingested from that, that protein source or your body's being forced to burn 10 percent more calories then there there is a I guess a a propensity there for you to then. I guess it comes back to if you're solely eating high protein by itself, without the context of fats or carbs, you're going to rely on gluconeogenesis for for carbohydrate turnover for glucose production for your brain to work first of all. Yeah. And then after that, it is very difficult <laughs> to create triglycerides. Yeah. from 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 protein so you, because you've because led very nicely onto my next point that i wanted to cover um which is is people will always say yeah but if you're in a surplus 
you know, a surplus is a surplus and you'll just lay down additional fat. I would argue very strongly, if your maintenance is 3,000 calories and you add 1,000 calories or even 2,000 calories purely from lean protein, the chances of your body laying that down of fat are almost zero, um, both based on studies and also on the fact that that protein, so carbohydrates being turned into fat, despite the fact that people think carbs make you fat, probably no one who's listened to this, is, is a two-step process. They have to be converted into glucose and the glucose has to be converted to triglycerides laid down as fat. Yeah. Despite the fact that people are a big fan of fat now, actually the storage of fat is a one-step process. You consume fat, it goes into the bloodstream as triglycerides and if it's not utilized, it can be laid down pretty much immediately. Yeah. That's a very simple process. It's a very energy efficient process. Um, that again, doesn't mean that fats make you fat. Eating too much will make you fat. Um, I know there's very few people listening to this podcast that won't get that, but I'd just like to caveat it. Converting protein into fat requires consumption of protein, conversion into amino acids, amino acids to not be utilized and then to be converted into glucose by gluconogenesis, which is a energy expensive process. And then that glucose has to be converted into triglycerides, which is another energy intent, energy expensive process. So that's not something that's going to happen. The only time that happens is if people are getting in other calories alongside their additional protein sources. Yeah. Um, and, and then I guess the other thing is your gut capacity. Like imagine trying to eat 2000 calories of protein on top of 3000 calories yeah. from normal food. I mean, unless I it's whey isolate <laughs> or egg whites, there's a very slim chance of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 2000 calories, you're, you're talking 500, 500 grams extra protein on top of what you're eating. Like, and to hit that from whole food let alone you know it's not gonna happen uh, uh, yeah and to be honest like you said if it is a lean protein source like this is now this context only applies to a lean protein source where there's no carbohydrate present there's no fat present that like you said that conversion of amino acids over to triglycerides you have the involvement of the gluconeogenesis and then you have de novo lipogenesis even in the context of an extremely high-carb diet, in the absence of fat, de novo lipogenesis is a, a very energy-costing process. And this is where we can sort of play around with our, our metabolisms a little bit and that you can do not only in an enhanced fat leak where you can drive protein to a ridiculously high amount, you have also capacity there to drive their carbohydrate utilization quite high whilst keeping fat like i like the way you keep leading into things i don't know if you're doing it <laughs> so we've, we've discussed both of us that we like this dieting approach with a low protein kind of setup and you've just mentioned that it allows you to drive carbohydrates very high so for the advanced people out there who maybe have competed a few times and are wanting to really push things where would you feel that perhaps insulin might fit in with this very high protein, very high carbohydrate, low fat approach? So great limiters, haven't you? You've got to look at the things that are going to start to limit the lay down of substrate. And one of them at, so at very high protein and carbohydrate intake levels could be the pancreas's ability to secrete enough insulin to dispose of the amount of carbohydrates that are being consumed. Yeah. And that's where I find for, for anyone who I've ever coached, keeping track of fasting blood glucose is the simplest way to see what's going on. Yeah. Because when, once you start to lose that morning insulin sensitivity, you can be fairly certain that what's going into the system, it's it's either lost the ability to shuttle glucose, yeah. um, let alone the most basic thing is you could be potentially dehydrated. So if we rule out dehydration, the next thing is either you've lost insulin sensitivity or you're not making enough insulin throughout the night to offset raises in blood glucose from glucagon and cortisol. So um, you, I guess once you get to that point where someone starts to start to trend towards five nanomolar, above five nanomolar in your fasting blood glucose, you have two scenarios here that you can do. You either pull back carbohydrate or you implement some form of aerobic exercise to try and improve glue for transport or you go the route like you said of, of putting in a basal insulin to start yeah. so how your body works is you have 
secretion of insulin that's happening at a very low drumbeat throughout the day, which is sort of background insulin that's that's not really reactive to what's happening within your bloodstream. It's just a slow, steady pulse in the background. For me to just dumb this down a little bit for, for some of the strong listeners, um, insulin is secreted by your pancreas and the secretion of that is generally controlled by something called beta cells. Now, yeah. beta cells, they respond to glucose levels in the blood. And if you have consistently high levels of blood glucose because you're consuming lots of carbohydrates, they can become desensitized. Lots of people will assume that the use of insulin will make you diabetic because that's what Big Dave from the gym told me in 1996. <laughs> I believe that for a long time. But if you think about this logically, those beta cells are being overstimulated all the time. So what I think Dean is about to suggest is that if there were a basal insulin in there that keeps those background levels of glucose in the bloodstream a little bit lower, those beta cells become less overstimulated and then become more sensitive to actual increases in carbohydrates in your diet. Yeah, so people, how, how you view basal insulin is you administer a dose that sort of maintains your fasting blood glucose level in the region of, of le less than five, basically, if we're going to keep this simple. And on average, a, a human makes about 10 IUs of basal insulin throughout the day. So when, when you start basal insulin therapy as a type 1 diabetic, you generally start with about 10 IUs. Whether you administer at night or in the morning, it doesn't really matter because it's such a slow-acting insulin, the risk of you going hypoglycemic from a basal insulin is very marginal, unless you decide to take a massive amount. Yeah. And even then, if you took a massive amount, all you will have then is secretion of ghrelin and an insane appetite to try and just keep up with that basal insulin to dispose of it from your bloodstream. So the basal insulin, like you said, will take stress off those cells, but it won't magically cause you to, um, I guess, transport or oxidize glucose at a more efficient rate than a bolus insulin. Yeah. So, so bolus insulin would be a mealtime insulin that you take at a meal. So in other words, you think about it two ways. Your body makes basal insulin and that's going throughout the whole day in the background. And then your body secretes bolus insulin at meal times to dispose of the glucose that happens from, from eating the meal. And that's where the, the use of, say, Lantus as a, a strategy to keep that basal insulin operating efficiently in the background and then allow your beta cells to work at meal times. Or you can employ both. You put the basal insulin in and you take complete stress away from the, the pancreas and now you're relying on the insulin you've injected to do the job. And I think but, the takeaway from this, which is the takeaway that we came up with uh, when I spoke to Ben Chow regarding insulin, was that, that the insulin isn't an anabolic driver, but it's a tool that you can use to make sure that those transport functions within the body continue happening as efficiently as they maybe would immediately post-show. Um, yep. Because when yeah. you know, post-show, when you're very lean, insulin sensitivity is high and you, you seem to grow like a weed. And over time, that, that drops off. And there are a lot of reasons behind that. But one of them will be um, this, this reduction in, in glucose sensitivity or insulin sensitivity, sorry. What I would suggest when I'm listening to this um, is that a GDA, be it glycomax or be it glucox, yeah, that's the new one coming. <laughs> There's been a couple of roadblocks, but I'm, I'm slowly working my way through them. That's fine. You take as long as you want. <laughs> but, but I'm not, I, don't you worry. I'm not like like my approach to the pre workouts. Glucox is different. Glu, glucox isn't, I, I've said this on a, on a podcast or I've done a podcast with that uh, um, Robert Scherbowski, that supplement engineer. Yeah. And, and I was I was explaining to him that that glucox, and there was a, also um, what you call him? Is it is his name Robert as well from Stacked? Yeah, he he was on the podcast as well. So I, I was explaining to him that glucox is the next supplement that's coming, but it's not a GDA because when I put that on my story the other day, people were like, oh, you're releasing a GDA. I'm like, no, calling us a GDA is is not an insult, but it's not it's not supposed to be a GDA that you take at meal times to help facilitate. Yeah. It's it's supposed to be of the same ideal well, like, like a basal versus a bolus. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like that. It, 
the way I'm, I was going to explain is it's like the digestion stack. The digestion stack has ingredients to help you digest food. So you can take the digest, digestive stack with your largest meal of the day because it's going to help you digest that food. But really, the digestive stack is designed to improve your digestion. It's not supposed to be this band-aid where oh, I'm going to eat this massive meal, so I'm going to take the digestive stack to break it down. Because if you want to do that, there's cheaper digestive enzymes on the market. Yeah. The digestive stack was increase your uh, stomach acid with the betaine, help your stomach acid cells with the zinc carnosine, and then the other fancy thing, the, the DAO, diamine oxidase, to help lower histamine, which can drive stomach acid levels even higher. So that's what can cause heartburn, obviously, in people that are, are enhanced. So with glucox, I want to help improve beta cell sensitivity. Yeah. I want to help your body's ability to oxidize glucose over a 24 hour period. So it's, it's like a supplement that you're going to take with your first carbohydrate meal of the day. And then you're going to take it with your second largest carbohydrate meal of the day. Yeah. So you have, you have a couple of ingredients in it that you term yeah. GDA, but the rest of it is, uh, is quite novel and, I really like, obviously, we use Sinulin and Glycomax. That's an ingredient that I really, really like. Um, yeah. And there's, there's lots uh, of on, on, on other things as well. Uh, but no, so, sorry, but... so like, like you were saying, like, like with, with Glucox, the, the two sort of, I won't say main, but the, the sort of GDA that's, if that's in Glucox is Sinulin and Bitter Melon. Yeah. And, and, but the Bitter Melon have gone like ridiculously high. Yeah. Um, the, the studies show up to two grams, so that's where we're going in. And um, I, I assume you have you trialed this at that dose yet? I have, yeah. So, so glucox, I've I've used the panel of glucox in some consult clients who yeah. have been on the verge of genetic type two diabetes, yeah. where where their HbA one C has been in like the low 40s so you're not you're not diabetic yet but if you keep going the way you're going you're going to end up diabetic and the the panel of ingredients in in glucox i've given to people to take as a a mixture of about i think it's like 10 supplements or something like that it works out the panel on it that you know for someone to buy them all individually is just ridiculous so I, when i told lee about it and explained it to me I said to him, like, I've seen this work in several people now who have HbA1Cs in the 40s and we've brought their HbA1C down into the mid-30s. So this, that's... This, this is where a lot of products... Um, I remember when we first did Support Max, I had a few people message me go, oh, well, these products are all really expensive to buy separately. How can you afford to do that in one product? Well, you've got to appreciate the economies of scale. If we make <laughs> a 1,000 tubs of something or 2,000 tubs of something and we put all of those ingredients in one product, it's only one tub and one label and, and things scale. But, but absolutely, you know, when you've got that combination of ingredients that you like, you can save the consumer money and give them a better product. And also just save them, save the customer having to do all that research. Because you know what, although a lot of people are really interested in supplements, there are a good amount of people out there, because I'm, I'm big into cars, but I like driving cars. I don't really care how it works. Yeah. <laughs> the man that I speak to about car things, and I want to know, just like when people speak to you about supplements, I want to know that he knows exactly how that car thing works. Yeah. Tell me what it's going to do for me. Yeah. I, don't care. I don't care how it works. I just want to know, right, well, you're going to put that on and then you're going to have 50 horsepower more. I don't yeah. know and I mean, that, that's that like with, with, with this anyway, that, that sort of the whole thing about like we could have another whole podcast on GDA is that my opinion of GDAs the last while is they became the psychological aid that, oh, I can't eat a treat meal unless I pop five Glycomax or I take some other GDA or, you know, I have to take my metformin. It's like, have we really become that psychologically dependent on these supplements to ingest foods? But I mean, uh, Glycomax has become like, <laughs> I suppose, the, um, the Dyson of... Like it's become a generic term for a GDA. And you're absolutely right, people shouldn't feel like they... I've had it before where someone actually rang me almost in a panic because he was on prep and he'd run out of GDA and he needed it that day. And he was like, I'll pay for a same-day career. He was like, you don't need it. Honestly, it's a great tool and it has a use, 
but nothing yeah. will happen if you go a day without it. Um, yeah. You know, and, no, we could, we could cover all of these things, but protein overfeeding, there's definitely an application for it. I think we've covered the ways you can implement it. Yeah. If you've got specific questions on insulin, the reason I bring it up is because the people who are actually in a good position to maybe make use of this are also the people who might be considering that. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we, we didn't even like the, the magic of similar to um, anabolic steroids increasing nitrogen retention, they also increase glucose oxidation. So they also increase how you break down carbohydrates and how you utilize them in your blood. So that's sort of where I was saying, in an enhanced athlete, in my opinion, fats aren't the, the magic macronutrient versus their plus and, and you don't don't worry about the rest yeah like i mean someone asked me my my fat intake at the moment is i think it's 70 grams yeah but that 70 grams it comes from two sources omega-3 fish oil and almond butter yeah and that's that's all i ingest they're my two sources i don't have any saturated fat mainly um i'll, and, see, I'll see it all the time and I, I i'll try not to get in a rabbit hole with this but i've seen people who i know are assisted athletes posting about how they have to have saturated fat in their diet because that's the building block of testosterone. <laughs> and they're not wrong, but they're injecting their testosterone. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of where, like I said, when it comes to enhanced athletes, I'll, I'll go to the very lowest level of, you know, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 grams per pound of, of fat, like the very minimum nutrition guideline. And not, normally that works out about 40 to 45 grams of fat yeah. but what i end up doing with that 40 to 45 grams of fat is dedicated solely to fat sources of omega-3 fatty acids and yeah. then potentially small amounts of polyunsaturated fats um, and and uh, sorry small amount of mono mainly from a almond butter or a, or a nut source so um, um, with, with that, you know, you're, you're affording then that that person can ingest more protein and ingest more carbohydrate. The things that are going to do the thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think if, if you are listening to this and you're thinking that you're interested in trying um, a protein overfeeding approach, I would say, honestly, this is the thing to try if you're someone who is, you know, the, the most complimentary way I can say it is if you're a bit of a James Holland head. If you're capable of doing the same thing day in, day out with military precision, then this, this is something that will suit you. If you're the kind of person that likes the flexible diet and it's probably not going to work for you just because you do need to get in large quantities of boring food day after day after day. Um, yeah, I mean, even even from, from a rapid fat loss perspective, protein overfeed and just... Oh, we did a whole one with Andy and, and you, me, Andy, Joe Jeffrey, a lot of us all, all implement the same approach. Um, and I did mine uh, eight weeks ago now. It was 11 days long. I dropped 11 kilos. I've kept nine of them off. I feel better. My fasting blood glucose is better. My waist is, is four inches smaller. I haven't ballooned and put it all back on. It's a really good tool that if used sensibly, just saves you loads of fucking time. Yep. And then obviously the anti-catabolic nature and preserving as much muscle mass as possible. So obviously like we discussed in that scenario you're you're in a deficit so what you're trying to do is keep banking higher amounts of muscle protein synthesis versus protein breakdown and that that positive nitrogen retention although you're not going to be accruing more muscle tissue you're going to be preserving what's there so in other words as you're breaking it down you're, you're sort of rebuilding so you're, you're patching up what you're losing basically and, and that leads to retaining the, the greatest level of muscle mass in the shortest space of time for losing fat. And um, I think that covers everything. Any questions, please do shoot me or Dr. Dean a message. Yeah. I might reply. Neither of us are very good at replying to things at the moment. <laughs> um, one time the time. And I'm going to leave Dean to uh, get to bed because aforementioned new child thank you very very much for coming on dean and we will do another one soon i would suggest that it's probably about time we stopped dancing around it and actually did one on supplements yeah 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 we we said we do and yeah discussing 
how how different supplements work and then obviously the the probably the, the supplement science of how we formulate things and why certain people choose different things like I guess the, the ultimate comparison that we, we wanted to discuss was support max versus the advanced health stack. And yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a really good one to do um, because they are different ways of approaching the same thing. And they definitely have, well, they're both really good, but they have different use cases. And Lee Supplement Needs sells loads of support max. We sell loads of the advanced health stack. Um, the new Astrag flow power is excellent, by the way. Yeah, it tastes amazing. Really I, I we 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 trialed that in a couple of different flavors and grape was another one that tasted really nice but i don't know there's something about grape that i'm not a massive fan of but what, what i found with the asteroid flow powder is uh, like what i've tried to keep with lee is the synergy between the products so that the berry of asteroid flow mixes very nicely with blackcurrant electrolyte plus so you know, you're sort of looking there for for what someone's taking the two products in the morning. Yeah. You're you're just increasing the flavor of the product. So that's that's my morning stack when I'm taking the Astrag powder now. Is I, I have the Astrag powder at work every day, about midday. Um, and I, I enjoy drinking it. Um, and there was another product that I've, I've actually I can see it from here by a different company that has a similar panel. Um, and it's still here because I can't drink it because the flavor is that bad. Um, yeah, I, I'm, as, as you know you 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 deal with our, our manufacturer also and he's when it comes to flavors out of everyone we've worked with he he really knows he really knows the stuff when it comes to mixing science yeah other than when he tried to make a heart stack cv stack and liver stack powder yeah, there's some things that you just can't fix. Which, which uh, unfortunately, I was the, the taste tester for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, um, supplement needs for the Dr. Dean range. They are available through Strom. There is a new supplement needs education website launching soon. And we will definitely pick up soon with the um, Support Max versus Advanced Health Stack. Um, me and Dean will have an argument and um, <laughs> everyone will get butt hurt. <laughs>